Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So said our Lord, in John chapter 12, Jesus there, as it is recorded for us, is speaking of his own impending death. And right after that, we read that his soul was troubled as he thought about his own death. But apart from his death, death reigns. And apart from his death, the wheat would bear no fruit. There would be no life, no light, no resurrection, no church. Nothing given to humanity apart from the death of Jesus Christ, the burying of that grain. He and his story are unique. They are alone sufficient for the salvation of those who trust in him. His is the greatest story, and still in him all other stories come together, and they all find their root in that story that is his and his alone. In John, in the chapter just prior to, John chapter 12, where the verses that I just quoted for us, we read of the death of Lazarus. And in connection with that death, of course you know this, there is much mourning done by his family and then weeping done by our Lord in the face of that death. And yet there is resurrection that is there. And the result that we read in John chapter 12, the passage which I just quoted for us, is that many people were believing on account of Lazarus. They were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. Lazarus died, and fruit came forth from that. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen dies and is buried in Acts chapter 8, and fruit comes forth from the death of Stephen, who is often called the first martyr of the church. At least we can understand that if we say the first martyr of the New Covenant Church, the New Testament Church. Acts chapter 8, this that I just read for us today, is a great step in the progress of the gospel. If you, if you recall back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to, him, to them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 is the great second step that takes place in that plan of the extension of the gospel, the progress of the gospel around all the world that Jesus has articulated for them. We go from the Jews, which we've been looking at pretty much right up to this chapter, whether the Jews are the Hellenists or whether the Jews are the Hebrews, and we saw that uh, discussion going on in chapter 6. To this group of people, the Samaritans, these, these kind of Jews that are there, 
They live close by. This is the old division that had existed from the time of those who succeeded Solomon as king. The division of the kingdom took place, and this northern kingdom was there, and they honored the Pentateuch, but none of the rest of the scriptures, and they didn't recognize the temple as being in Jerusalem, but instead had another mountain. And thus, if you were a true Jew, that is to say one of the Hebrews or one of the Hellenists, you despised this kind of half-breed people, half-Jewish and half-something else. And so we see what takes place here is this great expansion that doesn't take place because the apostles sat together in Jerusalem and they said, how do we extend this good news to the surrounding community? And they developed a strategic vision and a plan and sent people out there. Instead, this great transition of the church, this great coming to the Samaritans takes place by a death. Another grain of wheat sown into the ground. So I want to look at this passage today. And in the first place, what I want to look at is the weeping of Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 3 are dark. Acts has been bright throughout. And these are difficult verses for us to read. The death of Stephen proves to be a catalyst that throws the church into this great time of persecution. It's vicious, and it's, of course, led by the man we know. It's led by Saul himself. He's the one they, they lay their coats down in front of him to acknowledge he's the ringleader of this whole thing. And this Saul, he ravaged the church, as it says here. He dragged out not only the men, but he... he, he to show the, the viciousness of it, he drags out the women from their homes as well. Now, there was great lament for Stephen and for his loss. We read about that in the passage itself. But we dare not mistake the, the weeping, the crying that would have been going on as people were dragged out of their homes. As you saw either your, your husband or your wife dragged off, your mother, your father, pulled out of the house, thrown into prison. You don't know what's going to happen to them. Surely they're at least going to be beaten, going to be flogged, and perhaps at this point they may be killed. That's what happened to Stephen as well. Imagine the crying that we would be doing if we were in that situation, if we were watching that take place. We know the end of the story, right? I mean, I've read it. We, we see what God is going to do with it. They didn't, and it must have seemed to them at the time, if you were in Jerusalem, if you were going through this, that evil reigned, that hope was gone, that this young church that showed so much promise that had all of these thousands of people coming to believe, coming to faith, what do you think now? That it's in tatters and it's in ruins. People are running all over the place, and the people that you broke bread with 
are now being beaten, thrown in jail, or have fled and gone off someplace else. The result is that the church becomes what Israel had been so many times, which is to say the church becomes dispersed. The church becomes scattered, homeless. They become the diaspora, a word that is used here, a word that had a technical meaning of Jews that have been scattered throughout history to various places, and now is taken to refer to the church as well, who is diasporaed. Rachel has wept for her children before. That's to quote a line that Jesus quotes back in Matthew when he's referring to the death of the children under Herod. Rachel has wept before for the children. And now Jerusalem is weeping once again as her children are swept out of the city of gathering. That's what Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is the place of gathering. It is the place to which the tribes go up. You know, in Christmas we'll read from Micah and from other places that the the nations will stream to Jerusalem. It's the gathering place where the people give thanks. She's built firmly together is the idea of Jerusalem. But this seems completely contrary to that. Jerusalem isn't a safe place, at least not anymore, for most of the church. And from Jerusalem, they are scattered and weeping and lost and homeless. But behind this frowning providence, to use the words of William Cowper, there's a smiling face that is behind it. Behind the weeping is the providence of God. His purposes will ripen fast. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower that comes out of this persecution. And lo, how a rose air blooming blooms one verse later. As the weeping of Jerusalem leads to joy in Samaria, plucked out of that place and planted in this one. For a thousand years, they hated each other. They hated each other. They split with one another. They fought with one another. No good kings in the northern kingdom. No faithful worship to be found in the northern kingdom. Decimated by one kingdom after another. The accursed Samaritans, the half-breeds, neither this nor that. To them, to them, the church is scattered, weeping, weeping, crying as she goes out. But the church scattered, weeping, going out in brokenness, carries with it a seed.
And the seed that it carries is the very one which Jesus speaks of in the parable of the sower. It is the seed of the Word of God, and it is carried along by these crying people who, through their tears, talk about Jesus. They don't wait till everything's good in their lives. But in their tears, in their homelessness, how ridiculous then does it look to proclaim a glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ when you're on the run? When you're crying, you want to talk about the joy that is set before you, and yet they do it. The way Christians who have cancer speak in a cancer ward through their tears. So verse 4, how those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Preaching here is a translation. It's an okay translation. Uh, the, the problem is this. Uh, when we think of preaching, generally speaking, our use of the word is preaching is what I'm doing right now. You're preaching before a congregation in the context of a service. But instead, here, the word that is used is those who went about were sharing the good news. They were talking about it. They went about saying, have you heard the news? Did you hear what took place? And again, tears running down their cheeks as they're in flight. And by the way, can I stay in your house? Can I have some help? And have you heard the good news about Jesus Christ? Normal people. That's the emphasis here. Normal people just went about talking about Jesus Christ. Common people. Now, there were some, like Philip, who we read about in the very next verse. Philip the Hellenist, not Philip the Apostle. The Apostles were in Jerusalem. Philip the Hellenist, the one who was with Stephen, amongst others, appointed back in Acts chapter 6 to a particular ministry. He goes out and he proclaims. That's a little bit more of a formal word there, proclaiming the Christ. But the result, the result of the, the preaching, the sharing of the good news, the witness, the signs being done, is that joy comes to Samaria. They paid attention. They paid attention. What are you thinking about right now? Are you paying attention to the sermon, to the Word of God as it is preached? They paid attention with one accord, verse 6, when Philip spoke to them. They used to, and you could read this later in Simon, verses 10 and 11, they used to pay attention to Simon. Why? Because Simon spoke well, Simon did all these magic things. They paid attention to him. But now that Peter has come, they're paying attention to what, I'm sorry, I said Peter, what Philip is sharing with them. Now, paying attention to the word preached is a good thing. Believing and being baptized is a better thing than paying attention. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It's the opposite of what's taking place in Jerusalem. Here, men and women are being gathered together. From there, they're being scattered. Here, they're in joy together. There, in Jerusalem, they are weeping. 
Weeping of Jerusalem leads to joy in Samaria. And then this weeping leading to joy leads to the spiritual reunion of Jerusalem and Samaria. News makes it back, makes its way back to Jerusalem, and the apostles are there. The apostles are in Jerusalem. They're not scattered. Perhaps we don't know exactly why they weren't part of this diaspora, but perhaps it's because of what Luke had been telling us earlier. A couple of times, remember, in earlier chapters, he talked about the reputation of the apostles in Jerusalem and how the authorities feared the apostles. Even though they flogged them, they still feared the apostles for the influence that they were having. Maybe that's the reason that they could stay in Jerusalem and weren't part of those who were scattered. But in any case, I imagine the apostles back in Jerusalem praying, and as the people would have been when they were scattered, so the apostles also would have been wondering, what just happened? This looked like the coming of the kingdom. This looked great, and it looked glorious with all of these people. Now where are they? Everybody is in fear. Everybody is fleeing. Everybody is gone from around us. What are we supposed to do now? Who are we supposed to teach now? How are we supposed to have the Lord's Supper and worship together? And they get this message. They receive word back. The scattered church is faithful. And the scattered church is going around talking about the good news, sharing the word of God, and multitudes of Samaritans are believing. We can't put ourselves in this situation. Perhaps we can think of whoever it would be in our lives or a group of people who it would, for, for us, it would be unimaginable for them to come to know the Lord, which we just wouldn't be able to process what that would mean. This is what's happened to the apostles. What are you talking about? Samaritans don't come to know the Lord. We remember this time when Jesus talked to this Samaritan woman, and that was something special. But Samaritans... We hate those guys. No, Samaritans are coming to know the Lord. They're coming to believe in Jesus Christ. Forget it. I'll believe it when I see it. And so two men are sent out. Two men who once had a foot race because they had heard news that was so unbelievable that they raced to see whether or not it was true. Is that tomb empty or not? One's faster than the other. So these same two men head out to Samaria going, this just can't be. How could it be that God is using this mess to bring Samaritans to himself? We have two issues that are before us in this passage, and we, we, we have to wrestle for just a moment with each of them. The first issue that we've got is Simon and his presence here in this text. And we, we kind of wonder what's going on with him. 
Why is he here? What's, what's the significance of this Simon character? And of course, the second issue is why this multi-staged process here? Why do we get the sense that they believed and were baptized and yet somehow didn't receive the Spirit and until the apostles come, both pray and lay hands on them. Uh, now, as Luke presents the story to us, these two things, Simon and that story uh, of the Spirit coming, are interwoven together. For the sake of uh, for, for our time right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull them apart just a little bit so that we can look at, first of all, the second one of those regarding the Spirit and His progressive or staged coming to the Samaritans. What is going on with this? It rightly seems to us to be unusual. Don't you receive the Spirit in belief? And isn't baptism connected with that as well, the baptism of the Spirit taking place as one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. That is the normal way in which this takes place, even though we see this division that is here before us. And, and you wonder if you've heard a little bit about the modern Pentecostal or the modern charismatic movement, you think, okay, is this part of the justification for that, this idea of a second blessing, of a second baptism, of a second coming of the Spirit that takes place after one has become a believer and then enables you to do all sorts of things? And so we think about that. We look at this passage and go, okay, how did Peter and John and perhaps Philip, perhaps some others who were there, how did they know of the absence of the Spirit? What were they looking at? Was it something visual that they were looking at? Were they looking for the manifestations of the signs that we've seen in other places, the ability to do miraculous deeds, the speaking in tongues, spiritual gifts, graces? What, what was missing? By some means, they could look, they could see, or they, they could talk to or something and discern that you don't have the Spirit yet. Well, it's hard to say. We obviously don't have a lot of that answered here for us in the text, but we do have parallels to this passage that are found in Acts chapter 10, in just a few passages or a few chapters, we'll get to something that parallels this, and Acts chapter 19 as well. And if you look at those, it seems most likely to me that the evidence of the Spirit that they were looking for was in particular this speaking in tongues. And when they saw that that wasn't taking place and some of the other sign gifts that were there, they said that they don't have the Spirit yet. The Spirit has not yet fallen on them. And I won't go into the parallels because we'll get to them as we move through in Acts. But still, we ask the question, okay, why? Why, why this? And is it paradigmatic? Why the stages? And is that something that should be for all people for all time. Well, let me suggest a couple of things in response to this. It's clearly a pretty complex issue. But here's the first thing I would suggest. suggest. Even with this, or perhaps especially with, this rapid expansion of the church through persecution, it is necessary, even though God is, is doing a great work amongst a variety of people, it is necessary to show that there is still an order that God has established for His church. And in particular, and in this period, that order and that authority is most properly lodged in the apostles themselves. They're the ones who have been particularly 
authorized, deputized by God to function in this particular way at this particular stage. And so God allows the Spirit to come through them as a witness to their unique role and authority within the church. It is an authority that has already been demonstrated amongst the Jewish community to the Hellenists and to the Jews. They are already aware of the authority that belongs to the apostles. And now, to the Samaritans as well, the authority still belongs to the apostles. And as we will see throughout the rest of the church, as we go beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth, we're still going to see an emphasis on the authority remaining with the apostles to establish this church. Secondly, it's easy for us to read this quickly, this whole section that we just read quickly, the going of the gospel over to the Samaritans, but we cannot underestimate what a tremendous advance this is in the kingdom of God. It is the second stage in that worldwide expansion of the church. A Christ-like death precedes this expansion and a Pentecost-like falling of the Spirit comes after it. In other words, what is being rehearsed, retold, redone is that which we saw take place from the death of Christ to the coming of the Spirit. You're seeing a second advance of the gospel. That was to Jerusalem, Jews, Hellenists, and Hebrews. Now, in this second stage, it is inaugurated by a Christ-like death, which we saw in Stephen, and a Pentecost-like experience of receiving the Spirit. It happened with, and this is what I've said several times now because it's essential to see it in context. It is what happened between Moses and Joshua, between David and Solomon, between Elijah and Elisha. This is the pattern which God is using, which God is establishing. And what he says through this pattern of taking the spirit that belonged to one and then putting it onto another is pay attention. Pay attention. I'm doing something new, something marvelous, and something wonderful and I'm marking it out in this particular way. It is not normal. It is unique. That is why you should pay attention to it. But you should not take it as normative. Third, finally, the delay until the arrival of Peter and John is, in fact, confirmation for the Samaritans, as I said, of the authority of the apostles over the church, whether it be in Jerusalem or whether that be the scattered church amongst other peoples. But it is not only confirmation for the Samaritans, it is also confirmation for Peter and for John that the Samaritans received the Spirit. We not only have the joy of the Samaritans receiving the gospel and then in a couple of chapters of Gentiles receiving the gospel as well, but Luke affords us the opportunity to walk with the disciples in their complete confusion over what is taking place. 
how can this be happening? How can God be doing this? How can he be pouring out his spirit on all of these people? And so, in this delayed process, we have a thing that's not only good for the Samaritans, but for Peter and John. They need to see it. And it's witness to them. Yep. Just like I gave the Spirit to you, so I am distributing the Spirit on the Samaritans whom I've called to myself. It isn't paradigmatic. It is not normative for the life of the church. Rather, this two-stage thing is epic marking. You've got to see it. If you miss it, you mess it up badly, and it'll mess up in your life if you keep looking for this second-stage blessing. This is an epic in the church of Christ, and it is the way he marks it out. Which brings us to Simon. And there's, of course, much we could say and many questions we would have about this character. He serves to remind us that every epoch of the church, every place in which the church goes, will have, in fact, opposition. Those who will stand against it. And so Simon functions here in the story, and this shouldn't be surprising to us because of the way I said it's, it's this story keeps getting retold, Simon is functioning as the Judas character. So Simon functions as one who looks like he has lot, a place in the ministry. That's the same thing that was said about Judas. He looks like he's a believer. He looks like he's part of them. But in reality, he's not. He doesn't have lot with them. He's not a partaker with them. And that's what Peter wants to make very clear. Simon desires to use his money to purchase that which Peter and John have, the ability to distribute the Spirit. And of course, that's where you get the word simony from, the purchasing of religious offices. But there's opposition, and it's powerful. He had people. He had a following. The gospel is greater. Everyone who comes to Christ, and this is another reminder from Simon, everyone must repent and realign with Christ. We've got to be aware of our own temptations. For Simon, the temptations were for influence, for power, for notoriety. For you, they may be different. They may be something else. It may be greed, maybe sexual misconduct. But things can hold us in bondage. Sins can trap us. And what Peter says to Simon is, your heart is not right before God. That's what I see. Your heart is not right before God. Repent. Repent. That heart has to change. Now, we, we don't read anything about whether that took place or not. Don't read too much into that line. Pray that this wouldn't happen to me. Anybody would say that. That's not repentance. That's just a line. The heart needs to be right before God so that we are not trapped in the bonds of iniquity as Simon was. All right, let me bring this together. 
Weeping in Jerusalem leads to joy in Samaria and spiritual reunion of Jerusalem and Samaria through a sown seed. The seed is the word of God. It was the word of God that was proclaimed by a man named Stephen who died, who was buried. And the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. And the word goes forth. What does it have to do with you? The first one is this. And I'm going to give you two today. Comfort. Comfort. In this world, we will have lamentation. We will have weeping. And we will have mourning. We're going to groan in this world. This is the pattern. It is a pattern that is set for us from the opening pages of Scripture as a result of our sin. We will weep and groan in this world with the saints of old and with our Savior, our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will weep in this world. But the call to worship says this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We have weeping now, and it will flee. It will go away. We get a down payment on that now. A little, a little joy in the midst of a weeping world. And we get the full deal for all eternity in heaven. Now, if you are a classical music lover, and I know I've mentioned this before, but a little bell should be going off in your head right now. So here's an application for you. If you own the Brahms Requiem, Go home, listen to the first two movements of the Brahms Requiem. It'll be in German, so you'll need to have your little CD notes open in front of you. And the verses that are in your call to worship and the verses that are found in the Isaiah passage that we read, and this pattern, weeping leads to joy, leads to our spiritual reunion with Jesus Christ and with our brothers and sisters, is the one that is ingrained there. It doesn't seem in this world that anything can overcome the weeping. But, but, the word of the Lord endures forever. Comfort and second mission. Go tell it on a mountain. Now, you don't need to tell it on a mountain. Just go somewhere. Go on a little hill. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. But if you are, and you are called to that, then go do it. But for all of us, the call is, you've received good news. Whether you happen to be in this world right now experiencing a great time of blessing in your life, there's joy, or whether you happen to find yourself inside of the veil of tears right now, God's people 
talk about it. They talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God takes that exactly according to His plan, wherever He has scattered us, and He uses it to draw men and women to Himself. Whether it's formal, preaching context, proclamation context, or whether it's just us gossiping about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, may the Lord get us talking. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. May He get us talking about the good news, and may He save those who are perishing. Let's pray.